Greetings of peace and blessings, everyone. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. My name is Imam Soheb Sultan. I serve here as a full-time Muslim chaplain and Muslim life coordinator in the Office of Religious Life. Over the course of the last now 11 years, we have a tradition in the Muslim Life Program to be hosting these lectures and what we're calling Islamic Conversation Series. And we bring together artists and academics and activists to this university to engage with staff and faculty and students, as well as the wider Princeton community, in a whole host of conversations about Islam and its place in the contemporary world and in history and in civilization. So today we're really excited and honored to be hosting this event alongside with the Institute for Advanced Study and with our co-sponsors, the Department of Art and Archaeology, the Department of Religion, Near Eastern Studies, and uh, also with the uh, uh, Rare Book School. Um, and we'd like to thank all of our co-sponsors and co-hosts for making this event possible. Uh, today we're in for a real treat. We have with us Professor Christian Gruber from University of Michigan. Uh, Professor Gruber is also a Princeton alum, so we welcome her back uh, to Princeton. And also we have our very own uh, Professor Tessine Taver, who is a professor here uh, of religion. And uh, she's teaching classes right now on the Quran and on Sufism. So we're really honored for her uh, to be also co presenting this uh, event and this lecture. Um, and we also thought this would be a wonderful way for us to uh, welcome and introduce uh, Professor Tessin to uh, the community of people who may not have had an opportunity to meet her yet. So we're really honored that both of you accepted our invitation. Um, I want to uh, leave it there in terms of their introduction because they're going to be introduced more fully in a moment. And I want to introduce uh, my colleague and my friend, um, my collaborator, um, Deborah. Uh, Deborah is a graduate student here um, in the Near Eastern Studies Department. And she's particularly interested in Islamic manuscripts and in uh, the manuscripts around science and medicine and history and civilization and literature. And um, about a year ago, I was in conversation with a friend of mine who's the Muslim chaplain at Dartmouth. Uh, his name is uh, Khalil Abdullah. And Imam Khalil Abdullah, he said that at Dartmouth, they had put on these series of lectures in their library called Muslims and Manuscripts, in which they had presented on the Islamic manuscripts that are at the library there at, at Dartmouth. And I said, wait a second, how come we don't have that here at Princeton? Because we are the, of course, proud um, owners and possessors and custodians, really guardians, of some of the rarest and oldest Islamic manuscripts. And so I came to Deborah and I said, Deborah, make this happen. How do we do this? And so ever since then, Deborah and I were in a conversation with um, people from uh, this, different people at the university in different departments about how to make this happen. And so we're really happy that it all came together in the form of this event here this evening. And I'm so grateful to see such a cross-section of the campus and wider community uh, come together. So thank you so much for uh, spending this afternoon with us. You all are in for a real treat. Um, and I hope that uh, you'll be taking notes and uh, really sharing your thoughts with 
your friends uh, and your colleagues after the talk, because you'll learn a lot of new things, I'm sure of that, um, after today. Um, so with that, I want to uh, welcome Deborah, uh, who will uh, further introduce the event and welcome you all. Um, and the crying baby is part of the part, part of the lecture. That's my daughter, so you'll have to accept that as part of the presentation. Thank you so much for being here. So I want to repeat everything Soheba said. Thank you so much for coming to this program this evening. We're really excited to introduce you to Manuscripts of the Islamic World through these two wonderful lectures we have scheduled. I'm honored to introduce these lectures by way of an explanation about why manuscripts are important and what they have to offer us as we learn more about the history of the Islamic world. So let me explain first Princeton's connections to these manuscripts. The Garrett Collection of Islamic Manuscripts in Princeton's Firestone Library is the largest collection of Islamic manuscripts in North America. With nearly 10,000 volumes of Arabic, Persian, and Ottoman Turkish manuscripts, these materials offer scholars a chance to explore the history of the Islamic world through their handwritten legacies on topics ranging from the Quran, religious sciences, law, philosophy, medicine, astronomy, poetry, history, mathematics, and literature. Imam Sohaib and I wanted to introduce the gems of this collection to the Princeton community, from the oldest 9th century Qurans to the more recent 19th century tracts on law and medicine, and our lectures will aim to do just that. But first, what are manuscripts? They are most often books or documents that are handwritten on paper or parchment, which is specially prepared animal skin. Earlier manuscripts from the Islamic world, such as those of the Quran from the 7th to the 9th centuries and onward, were written on parchment, but paper was introduced, so the story goes, from China during the 8th century. And numerous works were subsequently handwritten on this medium. So what does it mean for something to be handwritten? We tend to think of texts as printed and widely available, because in our day and age they are printed and widely available to us. But many handwritten Qurans, for example, were produced only for the wealthiest of the wealthy, and their use of gold and colored inks reflects that particular audience, one that could afford such works of devotional and artistic practice. And although we often talk about art of the Islamic world as shunning human figures for geometric shapes and floral designs, images of humans do appear in manuscripts of the Islamic world. Thus, Islamic manuscripts were also mediums for paintings as well as beautiful designs. When we as scholars look to manuscripts as sources of history, we're looking at and for a number of things. Often we turn to manuscripts because the actual texts, imagery, or materials we study, though found in many manuscripts across the world, may have never been published in our modern understanding of printed, widely accessible books. When the manuscripts are the only evidence of a text's existence, they become invaluable tools for us to study history in a variety of ways. As representatives of the text, they offer us a window into the ways in which that text may have developed and changed over time, as we often study manuscripts from a variety of regions and time periods to piece together one text's history. This approach to manuscript study allows us to figure out how far that text reached, both geographically and across the centuries. Manuscripts of the Islamic world often contain notes about their, where they were produced, who copied or wrote them, when this was undertaken, and occasionally, under whose orders and funding this was done. These notations of production, as well as stamps and notes of ownership, further help scholars to piece together where, when, and by whom the texts of these manuscripts were read, studied, and collected. This gives us a better sense of how the text under consideration was received 
in a certain time and place. So this manuscript you see here on the far right, for example, may have been owned by the Mughal Emperor Akbar in 16th century India. And we can determine this from this large seal on the bottom right of that image, which notes his name implying that he possibly owned the manuscript. Additionally, notations found in manuscripts of the Islamic world often contain notes about the students who studied them. These certificates of study, completion, or ijazat give written not notice of the student's mastery of a text, noting also the esteemed scholar with whom he studied. Such notations give us a deeper understanding of the scholarly engagement surrounding these manuscripts and the texts they contain, as well as the spheres of influence in which they were taught, studied, interpreted, and utilized. This gives us a better idea of education and the intellectual context in which these texts were received in the Islamic world. Then there are the ways in which studying manuscripts can give us a better sense of their role as objects. When we find repairs in a manuscript, this suggests it was valued by its owners. When we note the kinds of inks and scripts utilized or the images added, this leads us to conclusions about the wealth spent on the production of the manuscript, and therefore its value as an object of visual pleasure and an item that holds and presents valuable knowledge. In terms of material history, studying manuscripts of the Islamic world gives us insight into how those involved in manuscript production, ownership, and study utilize them for various benefits of devotional, cultural, scholarly, and scientific practices. But enough about our theoretical approaches to manuscripts. Please now allow me to introduce to you our speakers for the evening. Tahseen Tagar is Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at Princeton University. She holds a PhD in Religious Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her work centers on the Quran commentary tradition in Arabic and Persian and early and medieval Islam. She is currently working on a book monograph titled Beyond Sectarianism, Text, Hermeneutics, and the Formation of Religious Identity that engages the Quran commentary of renowned 10th century Shi'i theologian, poet, and exegete of Baghdad, Ashrif Arati. Today, she will speak about Qurans and Quranic history. And Christiane Gruber is Professor of Islamic Art and Associate Chair in the History of Art Department at the University of Michigan. Her research interests span medieval Islamic art to contemporary visual culture. She has authored three books and has edited a dozen volumes on Islamic book arts, Ascension Texts and Images, Images of the Prophet Muhammad, and Modern Visual and Material Culture. Her talk today is related to her recently published book entitled The Praiseworthy One, the Prophet Muhammad in Islamic Texts and Images. So please join me in welcoming Professor Pai. Good evening, and thank you so much for, for being here um, on this um, Tuesday evening. Before we get to viewing and analyzing particular images of Quran manuscripts, let me take a couple of minutes to state the broader arguments or um, the take-home points from my presentation today, which I will then try to illustrate through the images that we will see in a moment. So what I will do in what follows is walk you through a cluster of manuscript images and elaborate particular conceptual points about those clusters. There's a saying, uh, of the Prophet that states, quote, when you adorn your mosques and decorate your Qurans, then ruin will be upon you, unquote. Yet, Quran manuscripts have been produced and extravagantly illuminated under every Muslim political dynasty 
from the time of the Umayyads in the 7th century until the Ottomans in the early 20th. One might be tempted to see a discrepancy between this prophetic report and the elaborate tradition of Quran ornamentation in Muslim history. However, in fact, what juxtaposing this prohibitive prophetic report with this empirical reality shows is that even in the absence of images, Muslim scholars and the political elite took the materiality of the Quran very seriously as both an object of reverence and as a receptacle for accessing divine speech. As historian Barry Flood has cautioned us, we should not read the absence of images in Quran manuscripts as an expression of an ostensibly Protestant semiotic uh, attachment to disengaging the text from the medium of its delivery. Rather, as I hope to show in the course of my comments today, the materiality of the Quranic text as reflected in the fascinating and complex tradition of Quran manuscripts was always intimately bound to not only the promise of accessing the meaning of the Quran, but also to Muslim ritual, as well as political engagements with the Quran. Now, one other tendency that I hope to question in my talk today is that of approaching Quran manuscripts as primar primarily as pre the predecessor to a printed Quran. And the problem with this kind of approach to the Quran manuscript is that it doesn't allow us to appreciate the social elasticity of meaning that the Quran manuscript has held in a variety of contexts. So, connected to this point is one of the larger points that I want to highlight and that I want you to take away from this presentation, um, which is this. The Quran, which means recitation, is primarily an oral text. Yet, the form in which we mostly seem to encounter it today is through a printed book. Now, this shift from an oral to a written canonical Qur'an does not mean that the semiotic and affective features of an oral Qur'an were completely lost. Exactly to the contrary, what the Qur'an's manuscript tradition shows and brings into view is the reworking and in some instances the further punctuation of the oral features of the Qur'an. Moreover, and perhaps more importantly, as I'll show in a moment, the Quran manuscript tradition also inhabits a productively ambiguous notion of the very idea of canonicity. As we will see in many Quran manuscripts, one finds explicit attention to, for instance, the multiple styles of Quran recitation, thus signaling the polyvocality of the Quran at the very time that the Quran was being canonized in a written form. Therefore, orality and textuality, canonicity and polyvocality were never oppositional. In fact, they were intimately entwined as well as mutually reinforcing and constitutive. And that is what I mean by the ambiguity of canonicity. Now let me demonstrate this point by turning to illustrative examples of Quran manuscripts. Uh, 
So let us begin with what scholars now accept as one of the earliest extant written versions of the Quran, which has been executed in what is described as the Hijazi or the slanted script, which is self-explanatory. Um, and it, although it's uh, termed the Hijazi script, meaning from Western Arabia, there's no indication that its production was centered in or confined to this region. Rather, it could be produced in places like Syria and Iraq as well. Now, one question is, I mean, some important questions that come up when you come across a Quran manuscript are, what should we be looking at? And, um, and there are a few things to notice. The first is the script, which I just mentioned. Um, which you notice is um, rather densely populating the page. Um, the margins are rather narrow. The second thing you want to be attentive to is the medium. So the actual medium on which this manuscript is produced is, as Deborah mentioned, uh, on parchment, which is the animal skin. And, and the third thing that I want to bring your attention to as it will evolve in the manuscripts that you'll see are the ornamentation or illumination that has been added on to the script. And um, you might notice that there's very little of that on this particular image. Um, so one place in which it may occur is in that moment right there, that place that marks the ending of a verse. So the ending of a verse on this manuscript is indicated by stacks of three dashed lines. Um, this little red circle over here with the dots around it indicates um, the 10th verse mark. So for someone that is reciting the Quran, they know that they have passed 10 verses at this moment. So to go back to the point of how a text like this can continue to function as an oral text is to be stressed here. Um, this particular manuscript is from one of the folios currently located at the British Library, but um, there are different folios of this kind that are spread in libraries throughout the world. <clears throat> this is simply a zoomed-in image of the same thing, and I'll just point out to you here, in red, you have the indication of a new chapter which will very quickly, you'll see, become the entry point for the illuminators to establish their mark on the Quran manuscript. Here, once again, it's rather simple. And um, uh, this is known as the Blue Quran. It's from the 10th century. Um, Scholars now agree that uh, it was produced in Abbasid, Iraq. Uh, previous uh, arguments were for its place in the Fatimid, during the Fatimid dynasty in Tunisia. Um, the key features, what are some of the key features when you look at a Quran like this? Number one, the, the medium is what really strikes and, and attracts our attention. Um, this is animal skin that has been dyed with indigo to give it this blue color. Um, the other thing that you notice is that the script is gold. Um, this is uh, throughout the entirety of this Quran, um, which has been produced using gold uh, ink. So clearly an indication of the status, the expense of this kind of production. 
Finally, you might also notice matters of layout. There's a lot more space between the lines on this particular manuscript. So having been produced again on parchment, you can imagine that the number of animals that it would take to produce a Quran like this would clearly increase its cost um, and um, as well as its status. This is, I'll just give you very basic information about the biography. It's uh, a 10th century Quran manuscript folio currently located in uh, the Firestone Library here at Princeton. It's one of the treasures of the Princeton Library primarily because of its early production, which goes back to the year 904. And for those of you that read Arabic, this is the beginning of uh, Surah Al-Hijr, which I've captured the same text um, on the, uh, in the commentary on the side. So this particular script um, corresponds to an evolution of what you saw on the previous slide, which was So this script, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, this corresponds to an evolution in the script, which you saw earlier, which was the, the slanted script to this Kufic script. And one of the things to notice here is the orientation of the script. It is extremely horizontal, and it is very conducive to the production of Quran manuscripts in a horizontal format, um, which we'll see is an important way to distinguish Islamic scripture from other religious scriptures of the period. Um, but then you notice that oops, here you have a further evolution of the Kufic script. It takes on a much more angular form. For those of you that are familiar with the Arabic, notice that in the in the Bismillah al-Rahman, the noon takes a different shape. You notice that this text is vocalized with these red dots as well as these black uh, dashes, both of which are an indication to the reader of how to recite the Quran according to a particular recitation style. Um, now, a manuscript folio like this can contain within it an indication of multiple recitation styles. So, once again, to point to the way that even as you're moving from the oral to the textual, the textual form can continue to operate as a form that allows for polyvocality. Um, this is uh, known as the pink Quran. I think soon you'll be able to guess what the, the titles of these Qurans uh, are. Um, this is in the Eastern Kufic script. Um, so again, things to ask are directionality. This again reverts back to a much more vertical format of the Quranic uh, uh, presentation. Here you see a fantastic example of the verse endings that are 
marked by the number of the verse is indicated through specific letters of the Arabic alphabet that correspond to numbers. So this is known as abjad and um, it's another way to depict uh, where you're at in your, in your reading in the station. So again, you notice this particular text has also been vocalized to assist the reader in their recitation. This script is known as the Maghribi script. For those of you that were in the lecture just before this, we saw another sample of this in the Mulay Zaidan uh, Quran. And um, you'll see that uh, once again, the use of gold has been used much more sparingly than in the, in the blue Quran, where it was for the entirety of the, of the writing but is used to mark the endings of the specific verses and at times for the vocalization. Okay. So that was one cluster of verses. And let me turn to the second cluster for which, with which I want to discuss uh, the topic of what I'm calling the intimacy of the Quran and its interpretive tradition. So... The sample Quran that I want to use for this discussion is from the Mamluk period. Um, this is from the 13th century, uh, produced in Cairo. And what you have on this particular text is not only the Quranic text, but also the commentary in the margins. Now, the commentary in the margins in this particular Quran manuscript is extremely distinct. One of the reasons for that is because of the way in which it has been incorporated into the design and the aesthetic presentation of the page itself. So, when you look at a text like this, the first thing that you might think is that the Quran has to be at the center and the commentaries on the margins which is how we normally imagine spaces of centers and margins such that centers determine what the margins are. But when we look closely at this particular manuscript, especially at um, if we outline some of the rulings that are still visible on the original manuscript, what you notice is that the folio, had, the way that this folio has been spatialized is not that the center comes first and then the margin added to it. Rather, these interpretive traditions, as much as the Quranic text itself, have informed the shape and the aesthetics of the manuscript in its entirety. So it's much more a symbiotic relationship between the center or the Quranic text and the margins or the interpretive traditions. So conceptually, so conceptually, what we see happening here is that the intimacy between the text of the Quran and the commentary tradition of the Quran is being established precisely through the presentation of the material manuscript, which has the consequence of blurring the boundary between the text and the commentary. Not collapsing the boundary, but blurring it. So hence, the point here being that the way in which the Quran manuscripts are materially presented and arranged 
have profound implications for how we come to imagine the relationship between the Quranic text and its accompanying interpretive traditions that are presented on that page of the manuscript. Now, just to mention that the commentary itself that's on this, uh, on this particular page includes three different kinds of commentary. One is interpretive commentary or tafsir. The other is of the readings or the fira'at. And the other is of the grammatical rules uh, of the text, which is um, the Arab. And those three different types of commentary are indicated through the different colors on the manuscript itself. But being attentive to the sequence of the production of this manuscript indicates to us, um, as one scholar who has studied this in depth, is that the illumination of this manuscript occurred last. The Quranic text was written first, after that the commentary that was proportionally designed on the page, and then the illumination came after that, which is very different from uh, what we might typically think of when we think of the place of the commentary tradition. So the significance of Quran manuscripts, much like that of the Quran, is not limited to its text only or its meaning but rather the way in which they are put to use and their material and aesthetic configuration were intimately tied to broader political dynamics and purposes, as well as to the ritual choreography of the community. So in other words, how can a Quran manuscript be connected to, um, or how can its very materiality be reflective of particular political projects? Let me illustrate this by walking you through a few examples to show the ways in which the materiality of Quran manuscripts and the way in which they're put into use were both important ways in which both political authority and sovereignty was imagined, showcased, and affirmed. What you have before you is an 8th century parchment from the Umayyad period which is a particularly uh, during the, um, uh, as I mentioned, the 8th century. Uh, so the Umayyad period is a particularly fertile period for the production of Quran manuscripts. Um, this particular fragment was found in a discovery uh, in 1972 in the ceiling of a mosque in Sana'a in Yemen, where many manuscripts would be stored in certain uh, in storerooms of the mosques in order to preserve them and uh, um, as part of the Muslim um, uh, aversion to the destruction of the Quran. So as a result, they would be stored in such spaces, which has proven very uh, valuable for, for later scholarship, of course. Um, but what's most distinct about this particular manuscript, which is most exciting to scholars of Quran manuscripts, is the fact that it includes images um, of a sacred space, namely the sacred space of the Grand Mosque of Damascus. And you'll see here that there is an archway, um, actually, 
That's right. I have a. So you can see that there's an archway. There are chandeliers and lamps, as well as marble columns that are um, indicated with great attention to detail on this particular uh, piece. So, why is this significant? This is significant because the depiction of architectural motifs in scriptural texts and other texts, religious sacred texts, was widespread in this particular moment, not limited to the Muslim uh, context. Um, so you'll find this kind of depiction on Jewish texts and Christian texts. So the Umayyads um, employed this particular motif in their respective production, but they changed it slightly. Um, in order to uh, distinguish themselves and to establish themselves and to assert themselves as a, a sovereign power. And one of the ways in which they distinguished themselves was by actually flipping the orientation of the marble columns that are depicted. So you see here the very functional use of an architectural depiction like a marble column, which has been presented horizontally. Um, and this would once again change the actual format of the, the book itself from being a vertical text to a horizontally oriented text, which was again a marker of difference. Um, and, uh, and it served the functional purpose of distinguishing uh, the end and the beginning of a new chapter. That's just a close-up to show you the level of detail that was involved in this particular motif. So here you have what is known as the Nurses' Quran. Maybe you couldn't have guessed that title. But um, this comes from Tunisia in the 11th century. And uh, the reason I want to show you this is to bring your attention to the different kinds of patrons of Quran manuscripts um, that exist. And this particular one is not only, uh, um, the calligrapher behind it was not only supervised by, uh, by someone that has uh, come down as, uh, been known as the lady scribe, but it was also commissioned by the nurse maid of uh, the prince of a Berber dynasty known as the Rizirid dynasty. So this is a really important moment to note the manner in which female patrons or female members of royal households could continue to um, establish their voice in this larger public and political sphere. Finally, the last of this cluster is known as the Umar Akta uh, uh, folio or Quran, which comes from Samarkand, which is currently, uh, which was produced in Samarkand in Uzbekistan in the year before 1405, and this is in the Muhakkak, what is known as the Muhakkak script. But what is um, the highlights of this particular Quran, which is perhaps not as evident from this image, is that it is a life-size Quran. Um, it is about seven feet tall. Um, it weighs half a ton. It is arguably the largest Quran ever produced. Now. One of the things that allows it to occupy that much space is the generous spacing once again between the lines um, and, um, and, uh, and in the margins themselves. 
But let me tell you a very uh, interesting story that's associated with its production. Um, so it's produced by this famous calligrapher who's left-handed, by the way, uh, by the name of Omar Akhtar. And when he first, uh, he made this for the Timurid, lead, uh, Timurid ruler, uh, Tamerlane, uh, who died in 1405. And when he first made the Quran for him, he made him an extremely miniature uh, Quran, which is in the uh, Gobar script, which is translated to the dust-like script. And when he presented it to Timur, uh, Timur um, he was rather displeased and unimpressed. And so he went back and he decided to make the largest imaginable Quran ever. And this is an outcome of that displeasure. And when he finished, he placed it on a wheelbarrow. He took it to Timur and he came out to meet him and greeted him and bestowed him with many rewards, as has been reported. Now, this is one folio that is um, again spread across multiple libraries. But let's talk about the other image here, which is this phenomenal book stand for what was uh, reportedly this life-sized Quran, which points us to the fact that a life-sized Quran like this was not only intended for display or the sake of monumentality and assertion of political sovereignty, it was also put into ritual use. So it has been reported that it would be taken out and uh, on a procession and placed on this book stand, which is located in the Bibi Khanum Mosque in Samarkand, from which it would be read during the Friday prayer. So, so the ritual use of these monumental Qurans is, uh, is an important point. <clears throat> so the Quran is um, never apolitical. And one thing that we need to realize is that not only are the meanings and interpretations of the Quran uh, that hold immense political value and, can, and are subject to immense uh, political con contestation, but rather the materiality of the manuscript tradition is also deeply implicated in the power dynamics and political conditions of a given moment. So this serves as a good reminder to us that those that are behind the making of these Quran manuscripts were also part of specific conditions and contexts. In fact, there's a case to be made, perhaps, that the Quran manuscript tradition was intimately bound and tied with these imperial orders. And this is, this is a hunch, but perhaps we can think of the shift from the manuscript culture to its print culture as corresponding to a story of shifting forms of political sovereignty in Islam, as well as globally, as the emergence of the Quran in print inaugurates a more publicly accessible Quran and also sees the eventual dissipation of imperial orders in Muslim societies. So it's a narrative to be written about the shifting materialities of the Quran and the shifting political conditions and orders with which they correspond. Um, I think I'll stop here. Thank you so much um, for inviting us both to go back to back here. I think 
My slide, my PowerPoint is showing, but not I think here if on you the just screen. Click so. on the display, click the display button. Okay, thank you. Great. Yes, thank you for organizing this. Um, thanks to Imam Suhaif. Thank you to Deborah. If Yusra is here, is she here? Thank you to Yusra. And uh, it's just such a pleasure to be back here. I graduated from the Department of Art and Archaeology 21 years ago. Um, so uh, it's uh, been lovely to look at manuscripts also together today. What I'd like to do is um, take you out of the Quran as a sacred text, but as you'll see, I'll be speaking about it a little bit, and into the world of uh, figure making with a particular focus on images of Muhammad uh, in the Islamic tradition. What I'm showing you here is just a small little upper suit into a book of mine that came out about uh, three months ago. So if you'd like to read more, um, there is available text to you. So without further ado, let us begin. Notwithstanding the widely held yet flawed assumption that the representation of human beings is forbidden in Islam, figural images nevertheless have played an important role within Islamic cultural and artistic traditions from the 8th century until today. From kings and maidens painted in fresco on the walls of early palaces and bathhouses in the Arab Middle East, right here, to kingly figures in audience or at battle as depicted in medieval ceramic wares, to early modern Persian and Turkish illustrated manuscripts boasting extensive pictorial cycles, here, images of human beings have fulfilled a number of functions for both private and public audiences. At times, such images could act as mirrors into contemporary social and religious circumstances, while others, they could provide wishful projections of political and amorous conquest. Regardless of their different media and viewing context in different times and places, such depictions pay tribute to man's urge to visualize his world in his own image. Within the history of Islamic pictorial arts, images of the Prophet Muhammad likewise have played a significant role in the construction of identity for both members of ruling political elites as well as participants in a variety of faith communities. Many paintings of Muhammad were produced especially between 1300 and 1600, a time of major political uh, religious transition across the Islamic world. During this period, a number of powerful Turkish and Persian dynasties emerged, claiming a sacred mandate to imperial rule thanks to their adherence to and promotion of the Islamic faith. In their symbolic formulations of rightful rulership, royal patrons and artists were clearly inspired by the model of the prophet, who was portrayed in both texts and images as a divinely anointed monarch an archetypal ruler worthy of emulation. Although Muhammad was indeed a mortal human being and temporal ruler emerging in the full light of history, it is widely believed that his prophetic rank and his proximity to God nevertheless endowed him with trans-temporal dimensions and suprahuman abilities, including the capacity to receive revelation, to perform miracles, to ascend into the heavens, and to speak with God directly and without intermediary. For these reasons, Muhammad was also imagined through a variety of symbolic abstractions, 
in particular light analogies that aim to promote his pre-existential nature and his ability to spread enlightenment to mankind through his unequaled access to the divine. Through such metaphors, Muhammad was deemed the ultimate source of authority and spirituality, and consequently was deployed as a point of reference within discourses on religious and political supremacy, as well as envisaged as an ideal conduit to experiencing the heavenly realms, as found in particular within Sufi practices of devotional contemplation, so mystical practices. These many images uh, that I've laid out here of Muhammad as a mortal ruler, as a radiant messenger, a pivot of truth, and a channel for unity with God reveal the divergent ways in which he could be imagined in the eyes of his beholders, depending on need and circumstance. And what's more, such conceptual picturations took a distinctive visual turn as patrons and artists alike turned to the expressive power of the visual mode in order to craft and communicate a vision of a prophetic past according to the needs of the present. So with that matrix, let's turn to the visual evidence. Although two or three paintings of Muhammad dating to the first half of the 13th century are still extant today, the story of the images of the prophet begins in earnest around 1300, that is, after the Mongol conquests of Eurasia and the sacking of the Abbasid Library in Baghdad in 1258. Although it is impossible to know what, if any, depictions of the prophet might have been included in the manuscript holdings of this famous library, what is nevertheless clear is that paintings of Muhammad began to appear in illustrated manuscripts that were commissioned by the political elites who ruled in the wake of the Mongol invasions. So this is a real problem for the history of art. We don't have anything that antedates 1258 in terms of images of Muhammad. So we have a gap of 700 years, and we just have to make do with it. Having settled in Arab, Persian, and Turkic lands and largely embraced the Islamic faith by 1300, these cultured patrons became some of the greatest sponsors of the arts of the books, through arts of the book, through which the biography of the prophet and early Islamic history could be taught and passed down through generations of believers. However, images of Muhammad, like this one, to which we'll turn next, were not intended as mere visual aids in the supposedly objective narration of history. To the contrary, they promoted the prophet as a repository of historic continuity and an argument in favor of indigeneity for an otherwise foreign ruling class that sought to construct a corporate sense of superiority and legitimacy within this new political regime. For these reasons, the earliest surviving images of the prophet depict him according to visual models that promote temporal authority and sacral rulership, as is the case for the painting shown here, included at the very beginning of Alvaravini's Marzubanname, made in Baghdad in 1299. Marzubanname means Book of the Margrave, and it's a collection of moralizing fables written in Persian. Along with figural portraits of the text's author and his royal patron, this painting of the prophet is one of only three illustrations in the manuscript 
all of which essentially form part of the text prologue, praising both regal and authorial excellence. Let's zoom in. Although the painting was a target of a later iconoclastic act, you can see what happened later on right here, the prophet had been originally depicted with visible facial features in 1299. He sits cross-legged and enthroned, wearing his large white head shawl over his blue robe. Two flying angels, whose faces have been scratched out later as well, fly above him while holding a fluttering ribbon. So here are angels, a later defacement, and here you can see their, their ribbon right here. The angel on the right appears to pour light rays upon Muhammad, while the angel on the left appears to anoint him with a flask containing heavenly liquid or scent. Other figures sit or stand around the prophet. However, like the other two paintings in the manuscript, their faces, and in particular their eyes, were damaged and gouged out at a later date. And if I were to guess, I would say 19th or 20th century. The Persian text immediately above and below the image describes the prophet as emitting radiance, much like a torch of light, and his two sandals as exuding the minty smell of the pennyroyal or black poly herb. The angels above him imbue him with exactly these two synesthetic attributes of numinous brilliance, right here, and fragrant aroma, adding a layer to the prophet's features otherwise not visible upon first glance. The petaled flowers and leaves in the foreground, right here, in addition, may represent two pennyroyal flowers, and thus offer a more olfactory evocation of Muhammad's prophetic aroma, which is itself praised in this very same text as, quote-unquote, a perfumed earth. Even though the painting's composition and corresponding text suggests that the prophet's inner essence, perfumed and radiant, can be the, praise of the subject of praise and mental picturing, it also pays heed to his more observable features. Indeed, Muhammad's facial features are extolled in two lines of Arabic poetry right below the painting. And these, li these lines say, peace upon, peace of God every morning and day uh, upon these characteristics and features. So peace be upon Muhammad's characteristics and his features. Based on the Persian text and the inserted poem in honor of the prophet, it is possible to suggest that this painting is intended to depict the prophet among his companions who sit or stand in medita meditation of both his corporeal and non-corporeal attributes. The men's postures hint that they are engaged in spiritual reflection and in active prayer. Indeed, they all seem to look upward towards a vision of the prophet rendered sacrosanct by the angels. One man seated to the left, right here, you can barely see his hands, raises both of his hands, palms facing upwards, in a prayer gesture known as the raising of the two hands, or in Arabic, swaying back and forth, seated or raising their hands in prayer, the onlookers are engaged in a visually rapturous praise of the prophet, his physical characteristics, and his more spiritual attributes. Theirs is a devotional meditation that engenders a visualization of the prophet seated in majesty under the protection of angelic beings that anoint him with heavenly radiance 
and heavenly scent. The depiction of Muhammad gains further layers of meanings when it is viewed in relation to another painting that appears just five folios later within the very same manuscript. In this scene, an enthroned ruler is depicted in the composition center, right here. He may represent Al-Dharavini's patron, a vizier who was active during the first decades of the 13th century, or else the unnamed sponsor who commissioned Al-Dharavini's text copied and illustrated here in 1299. Although the sitter's identity remains unknown to us, he is clearly of high, perhaps even royal rank. Much more significantly, the depiction of this royal audience shows undeniable parallels to the painting of the Prophet Muhammad within the same codex. I hope you can see the similarities. Indeed, here both rulers, Muhammad on the left and a princely figure on the right, sit enthroned in the center of an outdoor setting. Both are surrounded by followers and officials standing and sitting in poses of respect and praise. And in both cases, both were damaged through an iconoclastic act later on. So it wasn't just reserved for the Prophet Muhammad. Although both paintings resemble one another in their formal structure, figural composition, and their inclusion of a floral landscape, they also diverge in a number of significant ways as well. For example, the kingly patron is shown wearing a golden crown and a robe, here's his crown, crossed at the neck, while his attendants likewise wear contemporary guard, as well as headgear and feathered caps that were typical of the time that the manuscript was made. Additionally, two of the courtiers are depicted sitting on stools with pillows in the foreground. I hope you can see them right here. From the crown to the vestments and the furniture, these many details were intended to reflect the ceremonial fashions and effects current in elite circles, and thus helped the viewer interpret this illustration within the lens of the contemporary. On the other hand, similar details in the painting of the prophet are intended to suggest a very distant past. The prophet wears his overcloak and not a crown. His companions wear variously colored turbans and not feathered caps and they sit or stand on the ground without the aid of cushioned chairs. Without a doubt, the painting's artists strove to represent the Italian etiquette current during the time of the Prophet, which would have been available to him through a variety of texts and oral accounts. Now, while we can look to texts to explain these details, we cannot really have the flying angels above Muhammad be explained away as purported timepieces. Rather, their function transcends the purely historical and mimetic to suggest a higher ontological plane of consecrated being for the prophet. In this particular painting, as well as in others that date from around the same period, Muhammad is consistently depicted as protected and anointed by angels, as well as endowed with godly light and scent. And here I show you a painting in the Smithsonian of the prophet in Firdosi Shahnameh, the Book of Kings, and you'll notice we have the same composition, Muhammad seated enthroned as a king with two angels flying uh, overhead with a fluttering ribbon. And here he's encircled by the Rashidun, the four rightly guided caliphs. These iconographic details all contribute to what we might interpret as a symbolic discourse of sacral kinship through which the prophet Muhammad is both conceptualized and visualize. 
To put it more simply, Muhammad is imagined here as both king, enthroned, and prophet, so divinely anointed. These paintings of Muhammad as a divinely mandated ruler, as found in the earliest extant Persian paintings, must be interpreted in light of the particular cultural and political circumstances in Iran right around 1300. At this time, the Ilhanid rulers, who were foreigners of Mongol extraction, who were starting to convert to Islam, expended great efforts to fashion themselves as the inheritors of the Islamic faith, as local dynasts ruling in the land of Iran, and as world leaders descending from the illustrious line of Genghis Khan. Their imperial ideology synthesized Islamic, Persian, and Mongol ideas of rulership. Such conceptual combinations can be found in a wide variety of textual materials, including historical texts, diplomatic letters, and even coins. To give just one example among many here, a number of Ilhanid rulers initiated or began their letters with the formula, quote, in the might of the everlasting heaven and in support of the prophet Muhammad. The term that's used for everlasting heaven is Tangre or Tengeri, which is the sky god. It's not Allah or Khuda. So even the term for God is actually a, a Mongol sky god. This Mongol Islamic concept of God and his prophet can be seen as echoed within paintings of the prophet from this period, in which the flying angels can be interpreted as carrying and transferring the might of a sky god to his chosen messenger. The pictorial rendition of sacral kingship, in particular the inclusion of winged genie or angels holding ribbons above a monarch, has a long history within pre-Islamic Iranian visual culture in particular. For example, a number of Sasanian plates, which were used in private uh, Sasanian spheres and that date from the 4th to the 7th century, depict investiture scenes in which a monarch sits enthroned while an angel or two fly above holding a fluttering ribbon. So I hope you can tell. Here is our Sasanian monarch. He's being handed over the diadem of power as a little Cupid-like angel flies above holding, as you have guessed it, a ribbon. Besides these private spheres, royally sponsored Sasanian rock carvings use similar motifs in very public space. Take, for example, Takebustan, which is located in the Iranian city of Kermanshah. This royal arch includes a number of carved reliefs. The lower recessed horizontal panel shows the Sasanian king Khusra Anushirvan as a royal equestrian mounted on his favorite horse, Shabdiz, right here, while the top register that you see here depicts the crowning ceremony of Khusra as he stands in the center. Above these two horizontal panels can be found two flying angels, here and here, each holding a diadem and a big fluttering ribbon, the twin symbols of Sasanian imperial accession and triumph. In the Persian language, Ribbons are referred to as dastaj, which literally translates as purveyor of victory. Although Sasanian depictions of ribbons as part of imperial iconography antedate the arrival of Islam in Iran, the term dastaj itself continued to be used in Persian literature for centuries, 
most, most especially in Firdosi's Shahnameh, or Royal Book of Kings, which was produced as illustrated manuscripts during the 1300s. And I showed you one of those paintings. So the ribbon carries over textually. Thus, the earliest surviving paintings of the Prophet Muhammad from around 1300 clearly follow in the footsteps of Persian iconography, and in this case, the Persian iconography of sacred kingship, which was developed in both private and public spheres in Iran well before the advent of Islam. The images of cosmic rulers evidently endured well into the Islamic period, and such images, whether of a king or of a prophet, tend to depict an exalted protagonist enthroned or standing who is invested with the right to rule through God's angelic couriers bearing the dastash, a ribbon that functions as a visible material sign of the abstract concepts of sacred protection and divine triumph. As such, early paintings of Muhammad show the prophet imagined as a royal king bearing sacred attributes. And such attributes essentially comprise non-physical external signs, like ribbons and flowers and angels. Muhammad himself is not manipulated in any sort of way. In these earliest Islamic paintings of the Prophet, he is thus shown as both leader of his community and the last messenger of God. Over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries, However, changes in prophetic iconography can be observed in Persian illustrated manuscripts commissioned by the Ilhanid and Timurid rulers of Iran and Central Asia. At this time, the image of Muhammad as an enthroned Persian king disappears altogether. Instead, artists began to devise new and rather nuanced visual metaphors that aimed to herald his numinous or his brilliant nature in particular. This development can be traced in a variety of different uh, paintings, but perhaps nowhere best uh, than in two related <coughs> historical texts that include chapters that narrate his biography. The first of these is the Jami' al-Tawarikh, or the Compendium of Chronicles, penned by the Khanid vizier Rashid al-Din, and produced as an illustrated manuscript in the early 14th century. The second is the Majma Atawarij, right here, or collection of chronicles, which was written by Hafiz Abru, the official historian of the Timurid ruler Sharukh, who requested that Rashid din's text be updated and completed. So these are in very close communication, these texts. This one is an updating and a completion of the former. As a result, the Timurid illustrated manuscript of 1425, right here, draws heavily upon its predecessor in both its textual contents and pictorial images, both of which nevertheless have been altered in a number of notable ways that actually help us track how Muhammad came to be imagined and depicted differently over the course of a century. Although one could examine a number of paintings of the Prophet in these two heavily illustrated manuscripts, Today, I wish to focus on only two examples that help to highlight more general trends vis-a-vis -vis the development of prophetic iconography over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries. The two examples that I've chosen are the birth of the Prophet Muhammad and the beginnings of Quranic revelation. 
The Ahanid illustrated manuscript of Rashid Din's Compendium of Chronicles includes the episode of Muhammad's birth to his mother, Amina. This section comprises only two lines of text before the painting at the bottom of the folio, and none thereafter. So here's our chapter heading right here, the birth of the Prophet Muhammad in red, and this is the entire explanation of Muhammad's birth with the painting below, and that's it. These lines of text record the author as saying that Muhammad's companions noted that Muhammad was born in Mecca during the year of the elephant. The equivalent dates are provided in accordance with the regnal years of the Sasanian monarch Khusrau and Alexander the Great. No Islamic equivalent year is provided, most likely because the lunar calendar had not been established yet. So zero of the lunar calendar happens in 622, which is when Muhammad is an adult and he emigrates to Medina. So this would be a negative number here. The textual section on the Prophet's birth is thus exceedingly brief. Devoid of particulars and explanations, its only concern consists in establishing the accurate year of Muhammad's birth per two of the major calendars in operation at the time. Despite the brevity of this account, the painting nevertheless carries forward the narrative of Muhammad's birth by offering lavish visual details that help fill in the gaps left by the text's overwhelming silence. Here, in the horizontal register's central bay, Amina, uh, Muhammad's mother, right here, is covered in a sheet and reclines on a pillow as a midwife and other servant ladies tend to her. The newborn Muhammad is swaddled in a cloth. Here is our infant Muhammad right here. His body's contours and his facial features very clearly visible. He is held aloft by one of two angels, the second of which holds what appears to be a gold censer. And this is a later inscription, by the way, just identifying the scene. In the right register sits an old man with a walking stick. And this is most likely Muhammad's grandfather, Abd al-Muttalib, while in the left register right here stand a number of women, including an old lady hunching over a stick. These are most likely his, his potential foster mothers. And for those of you who have seen Christian art, certainly nativity scenes and the triptych format and the clusters of three will ring a bell, three magi. Uh, so we have a, an indebtedness in particular to Armen medieval Armenian Christian religious painting in this case, nativity scene in particular. Turning to the Timurid manuscript of 1425, a similar scene of the Prophet Muhammad's birth is likewise included in the collection of chronicles. The painting retains the horizontal format, and its composition maintains three registers, here divided by a wall decorated with blue revetment tiles. In the center of the image, only a reclining Amina and two angels holding Muhammad and a censer remain. The lady servants that were included in the previous painting have been entirely omitted, perhaps to emphasize the centrality of the birth event proper. Unlike the Ilhanid manuscript, whose entry comprises only two lines of fact-centered text, the Timurid manuscript here includes a much more elaborate entry highlighting a number of other details related to the Prophet's birth. And I hope this is clear to you visually. It goes on and on and on and on goes on for folios. So here you see how the original text has been expanded and updated and elaborated upon. So what are these elaborations, you might add? The text relates 
that when Amina was pregnant, she received a revelation from heaven informing her that she was carrying a blessed creature and that the seal of creation, who is in her belly, must be called Muhammad, that is, the praiseworthy one. The text continues by recording Amina as having stated that she saw a light emanating from Muhammad at his birth, which illuminated the entire world. Pavilions in the Levant were lit with his radiance, which rose upwards and reached the heavens and the stars. This painting seems to take up the theme of Muhammad's glowing light as it is described in the text proper. Here, the swaddled newborn, whose facial features remain visible despite a loss of pigment, is surrounded by a flaming aureole, which transforms into two large flames of light that branch out to the right and to the left of the angels. So here and here. The gold pigment is further emphasized by the bright blue of the revetment tiles in the background, a color that suggests the skies and thus the abode of God. Through these pictorial alterations, the prophet's birth is no longer an outdoor scene populated by earthly personages, as it is in the, ca the case of the earlier painting above. Instead, his coming into the world is depicted as occurring in a quasi-celestial sphere inhabited by angelic beings sent unto mankind to announce the arrival of a very effulgent prophet. So you'll notice he does not emit any flaming light whatsoever in the earlier painting. Such timorous visual augmentations of Ilhanid paintings of the prophet are common. To briefly show another example of this phenomenon, we may turn to the illustration of the beginnings of Revelation, at which time the prophet Muhammad was granted recitations through the angel Gabriel. In the Ilhanid painting that you see here, and here is a detail, the Prophet Muhammad sits outdoors in a rocky landscape, his hands resting upon his knees. He has two long hair plates, a beard, and a white turban. As he looks towards Gabriel, the crowned angel approaches him while pointing his index finger, a gesture commanding Muhammad that he recite in the name of the Lord, who is unique and has no partner. This momentous event, which marked the beginnings of the Quran as revealed to the Prophet in the form of oral recitations, was also put to picture in the later Timurid manuscript. Today, the painting of this episode survives on a single folio in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And here, let's zoom in to a detail. Although inspired by its precursor, this painting nevertheless reveals a number of divergences, including a brighter color palette, a thicker application of paint, and a flattening of the rocky landscape. Beyond these stylistic changes, one last modification can be noted, namely the addition of gold flaming halos to both the Prophet Muhammad and the angel Gabriel. In juxtaposing these paintings from about, 14, uh, from about 1300 to 1425, we notice a number of pictorial changes as Persian book arts developed over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries. These changes involve not just style, but also content. In the case of prophetic iconography, new content is in fact Muhammad's flaming halo, a pictorial device whose philosophical underpinnings 
are found expressed in a variety of antecedent texts. In such sources, the analogy of light is harnessed as a consistent rhetorical device to describe the prophet's more sacred qualities. In other words, to engage in abstract thought and pious imagination in the labor of constructing the concept of the Nur Muhammad, or the light of Muhammad. And this is where our talks really intersect, I think, quite beautifully, because we have to look to the Quranic text to understand some of these concepts. Turning to the Quran, Holy Scripture itself mentions in several places a glowing light or lamp that later writers understood as a metaphor for Muhammad. In a number of Quranic verses, it is stated that God sent a light and a book to his people to lead them out of darkness. Exegetes interpreted these verses as evidence that God communicates with humans through his book, that is the Quran, and his prophet, himself embodied light indicative of divine revelation. Still other verses in the Quran, chief among them the so-called light verse or Ayat al-Nur, were interpreted by mystical thinkers as a metaphor for Muhammad, as a torch illuminating an eternal tabernacle shining from the east to the west. And finally, many sayings of the prophet, the Hadith, further elaborate upon the concept of the Nur Muhammad, the light of Muhammad. For example, the famous Hadith compiler Al-Bukhari, and I've made a note of it right here, recorded a prophet's companion as having stated that, quote, whenever he went in darkness, the prophet had light shining around him like the moonlight, end quote. And the Hadith is filled with these kinds of light metaphors for the prophet. Through the authority of their own particular literary genres, exegetes, so interpreters of the Quran, of biographers and mystical poets, helped to fashion the pervasive belief in Muhammad as primordial light or luminous body derived from God's incandescent essence and emitted as creative substance into the world. These sustained efforts gave rise to the notion of the Nur Muhammad. This conceptualization of the prophetic corpus stipulates that God epiphanized himself as light, which then manifested itself as the light of Muhammad, from which the entire universe proceeded into existence prior to the Prophet's eventual physical manifestation on earth. Within the history of Islamic pious imagination, the concept of the Nur Muhammad thus highlights sustained attempts to go beyond conceptual literalism in favor of imagining what I call a more metaphorical Muhammad. And this brings us to our last painting. Such efforts in transcending the purely mimetic are echoed especially in paintings of the Prophet included in mystical or Sufi texts, produced as illustrated manuscripts over the course of the 16th century, and perhaps nowhere best expressively encapsulated than in the image shown here. This stupendous painting, now on display at the Met, appears in the introductory section in praise of the Prophet included in Saadi's Bustan, his fruit orchard, a book that consists in stories illustrating the virtues uh, for Muslims, including prayer. Here, the painting accompanies Saadi's praise to the Prophet, which says that he is close to God and emits a radiant light. Within this text, Saadi also asks how best to laud the Prophet, eventually bemoaning the fact that the written word and the oral prayer 
will never provide a perfect or complete description of Muhammad's larger-than-life being. The painting therefore seems to visually engage with and even offer one possible solution to this problematic by heralding the power of visual meditation, right? If the written word is enough, if oral prayer isn't, isn't enough, how about we try the image instead? In the upper half, the painting depicts Muhammad's ascension into the heavens. Here he sits on his human-headed winged horse, Burak, as he rises among hordes and legions of angels. He is surrounded by swirls of golden clouds, and a flaming halo encircles his head and turban. Muhammad's ascension is often mentioned in the prologues of mystical works, including this one, as one of the greatest prophetic miracles, through which uh, Muhammad rose through the skies and reached God. As a thematic pattern, moreover, the prophetic ascension was used as a foil by mystics embarked on their own quest to go beyond the visible and earthly in order to reach perfect Gnostic knowledge and unity with God, what's known as Tawhid and Ma'rifat. As a tribute to Muhammad's highest miracle and as a metaphor for the spiritualist journey towards the divine, the Prophet's ascension has been a prominent theme for representation in Islamic painting both before and after the 16th century. It thus must have drawn upon a number of precedents, including the Timurid illustrated Book of Ascension, which you see here and which we viewed today, just an hour or two ago, and other paintings. However, what is noteworthy about our painting here is that Muhammad is not depicted solely in the skies or rising above Mecca. Instead, he hovers above three men kneeling and closing their eyes in meditation in an enclosed space, and this is highly unusual. One of these men, wearing a robe, seems to have fallen asleep, wearing a red robe. He seems on the verge of slumber, while another, bearing a white, bead, a white beard, holds some prayer beads right here in his hand. Behind them, and within a concave niche recalling the mihrab of a mosque, appears a Quran stand serving as a platform for the holy text, from which a bundle of light emerges. So here's our Quran, the enlightening book, which generates a bundle of light that goes on to generate a vision of the Prophet Muhammad himself. So we have to look at it as Muhammad being begotten out of scripture to a certain extent. In the intermediary zone, so right around here, between the cogitating mystics and the rising prophet, appear two inscriptions. Above the building's entrance door on the far, far right, the Shahada is inscribed within a horizontal frieze of blue panels. So this is the, de the creedal declaration of the faith that says there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. As a proclamation of the faith, this creed praises the oneness of God and the selection of Muhammad as his messenger to mankind. The second inscription, which you see right here, continues in this vein, declaring that God is alone and has no equal. The painting's inscriptural contents thus glorify Islam as a monotheistic faith, the supremacy and unity of God, and the divinely decreed apostleship of the Prophet Muhammad. Its details taken all together, the painting here seems to portray a dream vision of the Prophet by mystics engaged in deep devotional contemplation 
while sitting in a mosque. As such, it offers a symbolic completion of Saadi's praise, which he himself bemoans as incomplete. The Prophet Muhammad himself is recorded as having stated, quote, the one who sees me in a dream, it is as if he has truly seen me, as Satan cannot impersonate me, end quote. So these are real dreams of a real prophet. The visionary dream thus inches closer to ontological reality, filling in the gaps created by the constraints of linguistic expression. Moreover, the painting functions as an external visualization of what is essentially an internal practice of pious imagination. In other words, this painting is not a picture, but picturation. It's a cogitative form of imagining. It is not a literal depiction of perceived reality, but rather a visual invitation to induce a dream vision of the prophet, in which Muhammad is believed to be quintessentially real. Finally, it calls attention to one of the chief paradoxes of pictorialism, of figural representation, in which the viewer is challenged to overcome optical perception in order to secure a real vision of the heart and not a vision of the eye. As we thus come full circle, we can see that paintings of Muhammad, especially in Persian lands from 1300 to 1600, reveal that a putative ban on figural imagery has not historically constituted the principal driving force behind the metaphorical and non-figurative elements used in representations of the prophet. To the contrary, the overwhelming belief in Muhammad as a quintessential ruler, a primordial flux, and the embodiment of a pure vision enables writers, artists, and devotees to engage in highly nuanced conceptual thought and a result, as a result to experiment with a wide variety of abstractions, and here they're visualized abstractions. Paintings of the prophet are thus suggestive rather than directive, and they invite an active activation of the viewer's imaginative faculty in the service of broadcasting both power and faith. Finally, they also challenge us students, scholars, and admirers of Islamic art to transcend today's pressures and presumptions so that we may critically assess, reconstruct, and preserve these pictorial traditions, which, without the shadow of a doubt, contribute in rich and praiseworthy ways to the artistic patrimony of Islam from its beginnings all the way to the present day. Thank you very much. Wow, right? Um, you know, at, at, at an event like uh, the events we have at Princeton University, if people, if 90% if of the crowd is still here after an hour and a half, you know how mesmerizing it was. Um, so thank you all for sticking around, and thank you so much to both of our uh, professors for their presentation. We have uh, some time, a little bit of time for, for questions, um, and so I'll invite uh, the two professors to come and uh, sit uh, here in front of this table, um, and we can take questions one by one. For those of you who need to leave, uh, probably one of the only positive stereotypes of Muslims is that we're hospitable. And so we don't want to leave you without any food. There's a reception out here, and there's some food for you to take. So please do eat a little bit before you leave, whenever you do leave. 
And for those uh, Muslims who are concerned about their Maghrib evening prayers, I just want to let you know that the direction toward Mecca Northeast is straight toward that wall, so there's plenty of space in the back to pray. You can also go to Murray Dodge Hall just a few steps away to, to, to do your prayers there. Um, so with that, we'll uh, take questions for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, yes, sir, all the way in the back. Yes, sir. Uh, a very uh, specific feature of this painting is that the burak, the animal, has a woman's face. And that has not been highlighted in any of the literature. Well, At least not, I have not seen it. Actually, what do you mean by literature? Whatever literature is available on Miraj, 
in frozen poetry. The moanness of the, the, the ride is not explained or, or not commented, which is very curious to me. So, Burak um, is not a feminine term, it means little flash no, of light. It's not. It's, but the root text, is but, which is, which is light. Um, but it's described as a beast of burden um, and a mule, Dabba, and those are actually linguistically feminine terms. Um, but when I refer to Barak, I always say it because it's um, an animal that, that can have both a masculine and feminine characteristics. Mm -hmm. And the, the gender issue isn't necessarily tackled in the textual sources, That's which, what is, I'm saying, yeah. which is why the images are so important. Because they give us an idea of how this mystical or mythical steed was imagined in gendered terms. So the Quran is not mentioned in the Quran. No. Quran speaks very briefly about the Mirat, only two places, chapter 17 and chapter 53. It's very brief. All these details are human imagined. Yeah, this is all extra Quranic. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the first uh, description of Quran is in the Hadith. Um, and then it develops from there. And in the Hadith even, it's, it's not a steed with a human head, it's a steed with uh, facial features like an Adam, as a man. And then it becomes a human-headed steed, and then with, you know, hooves, and then a peacock tail, and it gets developed in the uh, Mirage literature over time. So it's one of those um, elements that gains a, a patina of different uh, details over the centuries. Just like the Mirage. I mean, these things have a, a history to them that uh, are begotten by seed in the Quran, but then take a life of their own. Yes. So I, I want to ask you, so when, when the Prophet is imagined, is there a, a typology of situations in which, in which he is you know, imagine sort of the Burak would be one, a, a, a king sitting on a throne. But have you have you sort of thought of how he's represented in what sort of context? Mm -hmm. That's uh, if you want to read about it, you can just buy my book. <laughs> 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 on sale, uh, on, you can get it on Amazon for about twenty dollars. Yeah, it's, I'm sure I already have it because of my wife is Lavina. So yeah, Lavina Haidar. Yes. Oh, great to meet you. <laughs> She's the curator at the Met. So, yeah, no, the, the book actually is about these typologies from enthroned king to luminous flux to veil history, right? The veil to calligraphs early on, it disappears and it becomes an inscription, just his name, to then a variety of different techniques of recalling him through his relics. So, there are typologies, it's a sort of general development of iconography, but it's also more messy than we might think of it. So, yeah, uh, that's what's more for the moment. Thank you for both of your presentations. What I found interesting that connects uh, both lectures is, is how, um, in the former lecture, the uh, commentary uh, or the mar marginal um, uh, serves an intermediate, and how in the latter one, uh, the, the image, the visual visuality serves an to better understand, uh, to, uh, to engage closer with the text. Um, I wonder, when it comes to Mirage uh, whether we have
had also like a textual intermediary in addition to like visual, visual be it a commentary or or a readership notes. Uh, yes, that's great. I mean, even the Mirage Nome and the text itself is a commentary. It's a frontier, actually, uh, because it's a narrativized or fictionalized frontier. This is a technical term that Wendy Salem uses. It's called a hadith um, and tafsir. So you can have a verse in the Quran, like 71 or 53, very opaque, right? He traveled uh, from, let's say, Mecca to the furthest mosque. But what does that mean? He traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem. And then you've got commentary and exegesis interpretation. So you have this hermeneutical exercise of a fake Quranic verse. And then he traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem, becomes Muhammad had a celestial journey, he went up to the skies. And so you get this narrativization of, of very opaque verses that become a, a standalone narrative genre, the Miraj Nameh, the Book of Ascension. But when you boil it down to the very basics, what you have there is, is basically a, a fabric art where you have one thread, and now around that you have woven again and again a larger story. So that takes uh, its time. But the Miraj Nameh is basically a hermeneutical exercise of the Quran, narrativized and pictorialized. I just uh, want to add to, to that that I, I appreciate your, you know, sort of framing of these two uh, kinds of intermediaries. And I think one of the other interesting things that when I was hearing Christiane's talk was the manner in which the ornamentation of the Quran would be debated um, in the places where it was would also adopt a similar vocabulary as the one that she was describing as this kind of negotiation between where the gaze actually falls, whether it's the gaze of the eye as opposed to the gaze of the heart, and this the negotiation on the part of the illuminator to ensure that even as it acts as an intermediary to direct the gaze, it not overpower it or consume it, um, that it continue to you know push it further. So there are some very interesting ways to think about it when you conceive of it in the framing that you did. The Omaya Quran that you, that you were discussing, the Omaya Quran that you were discussing yeah. with on yeah. meditation on it, is that unique by itself or are there others like that too? Yeah, very much so. It is, uh, I mean, um, in terms of what has survived, I think that uh, it's one of the few pieces like it, which is why it has garnered the kind of attention that it has. But that's not to say that there weren't other similar productions. But it does get discontinued as a practice, for sure, so you don't see it um, surviving in later centuries. So I'd like to thank all four of you for a really wonderful event. Um, Christiane, my question uh, concerns a throwaway comment that you made that I wonder if you care to elaborate on. Um, you said that if you had to guess when um, the iconoclastic act of scratching out the prophets and other spaces happened, you would say 19th or 20th century. Are you basing that on anything? or? Can you, can you elaborate? Yeah, so this has been a, a continuous problem for scholars because you have these paintings that were made that obviously in the pre-modern period included facial features for the prophet. And you can see it clearly. But they come to us now with defacements. And sometimes the defacements are intentional. And they could be sort of a neoconservative interpretation of the fact that these are not allowed. 
these representations of the project. That's one possibility. So it could be a very sort of modern contemporary uh, interchange between the pre-modern painting and the, the expectations of the modern beholder of the image. And we do have records of that kind of modern iconoclasm happening in painting. The other possibility um, that I've put forward is that we've been so blinded by the idea that Islam prohibits images that every time we see a figure with smudges, that we assume it's iconoclastic. But oftentimes the smudges look like, for example, images of the Prophet, like his face has been kissed or rubbed. And we do have narratives of kissing and rubbing uh, beloved pictures in Islam. And so I've actually written a piece on basically the devotional damage because we think that all images of Muhammad that show damage have been the object of iconoclasm. But actually, if you look at it from a material sciences perspective, Gansitometers, uh, infrared photography. Yeah, and you can wow. look at the lipids through the saliva, and it, it's really incredible. We have been blindsided to the fact that actually, centuries, uh, Muslim believers kissed and rubbed images of a prophet in devotional affection. And what's important with that evidence is that when we speak about those who belong to the Islamic faith, we have to make room for the emotion of love. Just aversion, and we have to encompass the whole spectrum. It's been uh, very limiting and simplifying. So we have to open the whole sort of sensory and affective landscape towards images burst it open, because the evidence is very strongly in, in that favor. We have time for one 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 last question. Yes. What about the Mughal art? Yep, I think there are some images of Muhammad in from Mughal India. Did, did you have a question? Oh, in the book of the collection, um, you were mentioning the Bathier that it's uh, a form of grappling that's in the Dawa. So, how um, it seems like these are all like for the elite, or where they put the mask? These are all, thanks for that question. These are all elite, elite manuscripts that have very limited circulation. So, when you think about it, mm -hmm. um, swaying over to the Muslim faith. It's more of a strengthening of an in-group at an uh, elite echelon. Um, we want to thank you both for your presentations, for the question and answer, uh, for your presence. For your, This was really uh, a remarkable event. I want to thank Deborah once again for uh, co-organizing. When I say co-organizing, I'm being very generous to myself. Uh, it was mostly Deborah pulling my uh, pulling my trunk and saying, "Let's let's let's get to work." Um, so thank you for your patience and persistence with the Muslim Life Program. Um, we'd like to invite you to, um, the, you know, starting May 6th, we have the holy month of Ramadan starting, and on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, we have an open iftar and open breaking of the fast that happens in the Carl Field Center. Uh, all of you and your friends are most welcome. Uh, to attend any one of those um, iftars, uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, all throughout Ramadan. Uh, so we hope to see you soon and often, and I hope you join the email list so you can keep in touch about our future programs. This was our last Islamic Conversation series uh, for this academic year. Wow, what an academic year it's been. Uh, but we have, inshallah, God willing, next academic year, and we'd love to see you uh, coming around. And we'd love to see you, Professor Gruber, back soon. Uh, we <laughs> Tomorrow night, exactly. Uh, thank you for reminding me. So at the Institute um, at 5 p.m. 
Professor Gruber will be presenting on her book. Um, and so I hope that all of you can uh, come to that as well. Um, and uh, that you'll come back again soon. And of course, uh, Professor Tahseen is our in-house uh, scholar of Islam and the Quran, uh, Sufism, so please keep in touch with her and, um, and, and, and make sure you benefit from her, her time there. Uh, so again, thank you all again, and uh, there's a reception outside, there's some food. Uh, please enjoy the evening and safe travels back home. Uh, take good care. Bye.